Hey everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well, and it's time for another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, where we give you the best reviews and segments from the Needle Drop and Fantano channels throughout the week. In this episode, we are stacked with reviews. We are talking about the new collective record from J. Cole's Dreamville crew, The Label. They have come together with a new album, tons of tracks on this thing. We're talking about it. Also, I have a special review of Jack White's new Rackhound Tours album. Yes, the band is back after over 10 years of studio album silence, and this is their new record that has hit number one on the charts. A lot of fans excited about it. Also going to be talking about hip-hop producer Pierre Bourne's latest record. You may know him from his a legendary production on the Playboy Cardi album, Die Lit. Also going to be talking up the new Jaden Smith album, Iris. Yes, Jaden Smith, actor, rapper, activist. He's back with a brand new record. I'm not too crazy about it, but, you know, you'll get my opinion. We also have some new track reviews of remixes from Little Nas X, Billie Eilish. I'm going to be talking about Jermaine Dupri, record executive Jermaine Dupri. He says, all female rappers these days rap about the same thing. Is it true? Is it not true? I'm talking about it. Also, uh, Morrissey. Yes, Morrissey. Is he destroying the Smith's legacy? That will be a topic of conversation as well. So get ready, strap in. Here we go. The latest episode of the Needle Drop podcast, Babam. And it's time for a review of Dreamville's Revenge of the Dreamers 3. This is a new collective record from rapper J. Cole and his label, the roster on the label, the Dreamville crew, Revenge of the Dreamers 3. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the collective hip-hop record has made a bit of a comeback in 2019. Earlier this year, you had Pivot Gang's You Can't Sit With Us, a record that I did not cover, mostly because every rapper on it sounded more nondescript than the next. And then there was Beast Coast's Escape from New York, which I also didn't cover, mostly because it was weekly produced, the songs were forgettable, and I think the full potential of the record was kind of watered down by all the competing voices. So Revenge 3 marks the third major collective project to drop this year, and I actually have some stuff to say about it. Pretty much because it's decent, I prefer it to the other posse projects that that dropped this year. I also think it's a, a little better than the last Dreamville Revenge record as well, Revenge 2. Generally, I also think the talent gaps in Dreamville are also a lot smaller than they are in other collectives that have put out records over the years, like Maybach Music Group or Odd Future or Beast Coast. There are also some very quality features on this thing from inside and outside of the Dreamville camp. T.I., Vince Staples, Maxo Cream, Ski Mask, The Slump God. A lot of the production choices on this project I think are kind of creative, eccentric, even if the beats are a little repetitive structurally, they do provide a quality foundation for everyone on Dreamville to just jump on and do their thing. I love the surreal hypno trap with melting synth tones in the second half of the song Oh Wow Swerve. The instrumental on 1993 matches this very busy beat with some serene, watery pianos. It's kind of engaging, but also laid back. I also love the bouncy, sensual percussion on the track Don't Hit Me Right Now, the metallic synth tones all over the track 
track are a nice touch too. The beat is the perfect foundation for the druggy party anthem vibe the lyrics and flows are shooting for. One more thing in my view that makes this collective album special is that there seems to be genuine chemistry between J. Cole and everyone else involved with Dreamville. Not only on tracks, especially the ones where Jit is on them, where everyone seems incentivized to better their flows, better their lyricism, and just compete, but there are actually songs where everyone involved just focuses on a topic, on a concept, in a collaborative fashion. The song Lambo Truck kind of boils down to greed, being stuck in this destitution mindset where no matter how far you go or how much you make, you still feel like you need more. The track features Dreamville rapper Kaz, but also Top Dog Entertainment's Reason, easily two of the smaller artists on both of these rosters, and they're on here basically venting about being underdogs and wanting to, <laughs> I guess, rob their labels and the other artists that are on it. It's clearly meant in jest and to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but still, it's kind of funny that the two smaller artists on both of these labels would come together and, and make a track like this. There's also 1993, which is a boisterous smoke anthem. I got the sense on this track that everyone involved was like, in the studio, working on it, thinking of different ways to just make each other laugh because it's a kind of feel-good, celebratory, silly song. There's also Ladies, Ladies, Ladies featuring Jid and T.I., where both of them just reminisce over various romances in a kind of funny and nostalgic way. There are a few buttery R&B slow jams on this thing that are alright. I wouldn't say tracks in this style are Dreamville's strength, but I wouldn't tell the label or anyone on it to avoid making this type of music either. It's passable. Meanwhile, there are a few tracks on this thing that are legit boring, like they just should have not made it onto this project. Like Cole and Young Nudie, who do absolutely nothing for each other on the song Sunset. And I could almost tell on this track Cole is trying to tone lyrically and vocally what he typically does down to match Nudie's very understated energy, and the result is just a forgettable, pointless track. Then there's the Earth Gang song on this thing, which is meant to be on the duo's forthcoming record, and for some reason it's one of the most underwhelming and understated songs on the entire project, which is weird because every other track, collective track, Earth Gang appears on on this project, it's easily one of the wildest and <laughs> shouty and eccentric and nutso songs on this thing, but this particular track is like... I don't know, so out of character for them in just how uh, lifeless it feels. Maybe it will make more sense as a mellower moment on their forthcoming project, but in Revenge 3 it just feels like a lull. Past that there are a few okay jazz rap tracks on this thing like Sleep Deprived or the first half of Oh Wow. Sure, listenable, but not one of the more stunning moments on this project. And of course we do get a few tracks that have so many voices on it I think it kind of dilutes the power and the potency of the song. Don't hit me right now to a degree. Also the song Costa Rica. I mean, th this is just way too many rappers to be just slipping into a track casually for three minutes and 37 seconds. Especially since the performances of each of the artists on this track varies greatly in terms of intensity and quality and memorability. I do like the J. Cole song Middle Child that turns up toward the end of this project. I gave it a very positive review on my Fantano channel, but hearing it in the context of this very collective and collaborative group project seems sort of antithetical to, to the point of the whole thing. So not every track on Revenge 3 is amazing. There are a handful of snoozers, quite a few tracks that are just okay, and quite a few great songs too. It is all over the place, but I will say that I think 
this project does give a better and a greater vision for the future of the label than I think Revenge 2 did. And even though it is deeply flawed, this certainly does make me more interested in what everyone on Dreamville is doing in the future, as opposed to some of the other collective-based projects that I've heard as of late. I'm feeling a light to decent six on this one. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Raconteurs record, Help Us Stranger. It has been over 10 years since Jack White, Brendan Benson, Patrick Keeler, and Jack Lawrence came together under the Raconteurs name and put out a full studio album. And I guess you can tell they were sorely missed because their return led to this album hitting number one on the Billboard charts with over 80,000 units in physical album sales physical in 2019. To be honest, while I was a huge White Stripes fan when they were active and putting out their best stuff, I was a listener that never really matriculated over into a lot of Jack's musical extracurriculars. Even if it is arguable, the first two Raconteur records are better than the last two White Stripes records. But I just never really went crazy for their mature and dramatic presentations of blues and folk and garage rock. I will admit Jack was coming up with some pretty awesome guitar wizardry on this record, the riffs on store-bought bones absolutely kick ass. But a lot of the songwriting on these albums, in my view, is painfully basic, simple to the point of being uninspired. I also wasn't that into the direction of their last full-length album either, Consolers of the Lonely. Multiple tracks on this thing felt like the band were feeding these various forms of rock through this vaudeville lens that was just incredibly corny to me. But hey, it's been 10 years since then, I figure at this point, all bets are off. The, the record could be good. The sound's probably way different. I did hear some pretty great teaser tracks like Bored and Raised and Sunday Driver, both of which have great rock and roll riffs, bombastic production, infectious hooks, and a wonderfully rowdy energy. The magic on both these tracks boils down to focusing on the basics of every great rock song and just making sure they're done well, right down to the quarter note cowbells and fist-pumping drum beats. Oh boy, daddy's some cringe. Yes, it's simple, but it's also bold and delivered with a heaping helping of attitude. And going deeper into this album, I guess all I could hope for was more tracks that were equally as gratifying and punchy, just whipping me up into a frenzy. But the issue standing in the way of that is the track list is not all that consistent, because the flow of the album loses steam pretty quickly as numerous songs just head into milder, less interesting territory. Either that, or we're getting lyrics that are so plain and vague the song communicates little to nothing. The instrumental can feel kind of off too, especially in the case of Help Me Stranger. The mix of rickety drums and blown out acoustic guitars and multi-tracked Jack White vocals on this track just feel awkward. It's so bulky, I wish the track just had more groove and finesse and breathing room to it. For the most part, it just feels like it's crumbling under its own weight. The bittersweet and kind of curious melodies on the track Only Child are a nice change of pace. I like some of the synth lines that are worked into the track. They feel like something out of a prog song. The vocals aren't too bad either, but the pacing is so frickin' tedious. On top of that, the songwriting is a little predictable too. I feel like once you've heard the first half of the song, the rest of the track doesn't really have that much more to present to you. It's like I'm listening to really uninspired tear-in-your-beer bar band rock, but with more 
eccentricities and teeth in the production. I would say the bar band ballads on this thing continue onto the song Some Days. I think the ascending and descending guitar leads on this track on the chorus are pretty fantastic, but the compositional side of the track, the foundation, the songwriting is so blatantly unoriginal. It's like I'm listening to a more boring version of knocking on heaven's door. I just can't get over this feeling that the band are just fulfilling this weird nostalgia kick and that's it. And don't get me wrong, all of these songs so far are fine. They're listenable, but they're far from refreshing or exciting. I would say the record goes from just okay to hard to tolerate on the track Hey Jip though. It's like I'm listening to bubblegum noise blues. No, th no thank you. The song Live a Lie, in my view, comes in second as far as, hey, we probably could have put more effort into this track to make it sound like it didn't get thrown together in a few hours, but we didn't, goes. But maybe the cringiest moment on the album comes down to the lyrics on Now That You're Gone. It's essentially one of those really patronizing, you left and I don't miss you anymore songs, but yet I'm thinking about you enough to write a song about you. And now I have all these petty things to say about you being lost without me. And it's painfully obvious that all of this is coming from a place of insecurity. I honestly wouldn't want to hear this kind of person talking in my ear about any of this crap. So why I would want to hear someone singing to me about it, I don't know. Even if the track does have a pretty solid chorus. There are a few risks and good songs and memorable moments to be had in the track list though that stood out to me. The song Don't Bother Me instrumentally is one of the zanier moments on the entire record. It actually reminds me of something that Jack would have done on his recent Boarding House Reach solo effort. All of the don't bother me bother me mantras all over the track play into these themes of selfishness, self-obsession, apathy, being in your own little bubble, whether that be because of social media, obsession with oneself, or some kind of hidden political agenda. I also love the track Shine a Light on Me quite a bit too. The pained lead vocals and saloon-style pianos are pretty sharp. Also, the track features some legitimately sad and lonely lyrics that uh, account for some of the best writing on the entire record. My hands are colder when you're gone. It makes it hard to play the notes I write to warm your mind. Honestly though, there's not a whole lot on this album that's leaving a super positive impression on me. It's just a very weak batch of songs, and even if there are elements of the loud, bombastic production that I like quite a bit, it's just not enough to make up for the very shabby writing on this thing. And I know I didn't go too deep into this, but there are points where the production works against the quality of this album, like on the somewhat folky outro. Like, there is no reason the acoustic guitars on this track should sound this blown up. It's just so bricked out. I see the merits in this album. I can see why people are hyped for it. I can see why Raconteur fans are liking it, but I, I, don't, I don't think a lot of it is, is for me, frankly. I'm feeling a strong five to a light six on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Pierre Bourne record, The Life of Pierre 4. This is the new solo effort of in-demand hip-hop producer Pierre Bourne, who is suddenly at the center of a lot of conversations about who some of the best and most promising producers are in hip-hop right now, thanks to many of the beats that were placed on one of the more groundbreaking and head-turning trap records at the moment, and that is Playboy Cardi's Lit. Now, as I said in my recent review of Slime Mare, a collaborative record between Pierre Bourne and Atlanta rapper Young Nudie, Die Lit is a minimal and a subtly psychedelic approach to the rattling hi-hats and the snappy snares and the rubbery sub-bass that a lot of modern internet trap has built its foundations on. And as I also said in that Slime Mare review, 
I didn't quite get the point of releasing that Slime Air album because it only really served to water down the appeal of what Pierre is doing. Revealing his trademark style as a predictable formula that will go stale if he doesn't switch it up. And just a month or so later, we're already getting another Pierre project. And I feel weird doing this review because I feel like I should have more to say about this album, but I don't. If you just can't get enough of Pierre's sound, like you just cannot get enough of it, yeah, I guess you will like a lot of the instrumentals on this thing. If you wanna hear that same formula, again and again, you'll like it. Because just like before, I will say Pierre does have a knack for doing a lot with a little. Creating these very hypnotic and wavy beats out of just a handful of very small, easygoing, relaxing sounds. Like the gentle and ringing synth chords on the track Try Again. They're so sweet. They're so tiny, they're like a little baby owl. There's also the very simple but effective synth line on the track How High, compounded with the thuddy bass, as well as the hypnotic percussion. It's a good beat. The song Ballad aesthetically is bordering almost on like ambient trap. But ultimately there's nothing on this project that stands out instrumentally to my ears as being supremely weird or unique in the ongoing catalog of beats that Pierre has released so far. Sure, while Pierre's approach is not hyper-aggressive or anything like that, generally the beats on this album are about as conventional as trap beats get. A few outliers here and there, yes, like the weepy strings sampled all over the track Romeo Must Die, which uh, comparatively are highlight, but mostly the beats here are just very, very basic. And this is something I think I could overlook if it weren't for the fact that Pierre is just such a mediocre and an average rapper, singer, vocalist. Yes, he raps and sings on this record. He's not bringing other people on to rap for him or anything like that. This is purely a solo effort. And even with the quality standards of rapping and singing being at an all-time low right now, I would say Pierre barely even approaches that bar. Nearly everything he does on this album vocally is nondescript. It is Dime a Dozen. Some of the shouty vocals of, oh my gosh, on the track Horoscopes. I mean, they're not that good, but at this point on the album, I'm starving for anything that stands out. Just anything on this record that doesn't have me feeling like I'm running in circles. The song Juice stood out as just having some very straightforward rapping on it, a bit of oomph to it. I guess there may be a flow or two on this thing that's kind of catchy, but the appeal of these moments is mostly ruined by just how repetitive and uninspired many of the songs and beats are. Racer stood out to me as conceptually being one of the more introspective and nostalgic tracks on the entire record. Certainly showed a more personal side of Pierre, I suppose. That alone, I guess, puts it a step above the vast majority of these songs that are just trying to be wash, rinse, repeat, playlist, party, filler. Like with the Young Nudie record, in many respects, especially in small doses, this album is okay while it's on, but there's literally nothing on this album that's going to warrant another listen five years from now. Even after listening through this project enough times for a review, I struggle to recall a moment from it that really stuck with me. And I mean really stuck with me, something I'm gonna remember for like the next year or so. The life of Pierre Four is so devoid of anything stand out, it's just mind-numbing. It's like being trapped in a maze where every turn that I take, I feel like I was just at that point, just at that moment. And that's because this album 
is just an attempt by Pierre to saturate the music market with more of the same stuff that he sees is currently hitting in his catalog right now. I can't deny that this move is most likely a smart one for Pierre's bottom line, but artistically, once again, Pierre is watering his style down with an album that doesn't show how versatile he is but how one-dimensional. The forgettable beats and painfully average vocals are just another kicker of disappointment. I'm feeling a strong three to a light four on this one. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Jaden Smith album, Iris. This is the latest full-length album from actor, rapper, singer, producer, hip-hop, visionary. Jaden Smith. Starting out as a famous actor and the son of rapper and actor Will Smith, Jaden Smith started in the rap game with a pretty high profile. Way higher than I think any artist would have been given the quality of the music he was releasing right off the bat with the cool tapes of volume one and two. But despite the negative reactions to what Jaden was doing at this point in his career, he was slowly gaining a very passionate fan base, people who seemed enamored with his fame, with his image, with his naive but ambitious artistic vision. We eventually reached a point where Jaden's singles, EPs, and mixtapes built him up into album mode. And that is when we got Sire in 2017. A record that to this day, every once in a while, I do get reactions and opinions telling me, dude, Dude, you were too harsh on that record. But going back, I'm still not really seeing what exactly I was missing on that project, as it doesn't really feel like I'm listening to a rapper, but someone LARPing as a rapper, blatantly ripping off tons of ideas from his contemporaries as he jumps from one track to the next. Now granted, some of the instrumentals on Sire were pretty great. The budget on this record was clearly high. It's not a cheap album, but it is a very misguided and somewhat derivative album. Going into Iris, I was hoping that Jaden's writing and his singing, his rapping, his songing, would have gotten better, but I, uh, it, I, that's that's most likely not going to be the case. Especially since when he dropped the Sunset Tapes, a project he put out last year, just a year after Sire, the songs on this thing were way worse on the production side, and the tunes, the ideas were even more derivative. But now he was borrowing those ideas from other places, namely groups such as Brockhampton. The Sunset Tapes is easily one of the most unflattering projects I've heard this decade. So again, honestly, I would have liked to have gone into Iris with higher hopes, but I just don't see any reason as to why Jaden would have turned a new leaf artistically in the past few years, especially since these two albums seem very obviously related. They're structured similarly. The title is literally Sire backwards. It is pretty much Sire's spiritual successor. So clearly there was a lot of stuff on Sire that Jaden saw fit to carry over onto Iris. Stuff he thought warranted repeating, like the numerous references to his song Lost Boy on this LP. Also the fact that the album kicks off with another four-part song whose titles spell out a color 
not blue in this instance, but pink. And pink is actually a pretty cool moment on the album, which is not surprising because in the grander scheme of Sire's track list, blue is one of the better moments on the album too. The opening track, P, kicks off with these weepy pianos and female lead vocals that are very theatrical. It sounds almost like the intro to an Evanescence song. We get some Kanye-inspired twists toward the back end of the track. It's a very weird mix of ideas that I partially think are super corny, but also kind of admirable. As the production is pretty nice, and I can't really think of any artist out there right now that's going for this particular combination of ideas. <laughs> it definitely gets better as it progresses, but my main issue with this song is that it sets this tone of epic extravagance that the rest of the record just doesn't really deliver on, both sonically and substantively. Following after is a straight rap track with a killer instrumental, very peppy trap percussion complemented with these plinky and deflating synth tones. At various points the instrumental goes kind of lush with these very subtle layers of harmony. What's less impressive though is Jaden's very flat one-dimensional rapping. He's also placed a distortion effect on his voice on this one. It's like he thinks he's the Gen Z Kanye, but he's executing it with some stale Drake swag, and of course a side of wokeness woven into the lyrics every once in a while. The song N is a lot grander instrumentally and stylistically. It's actually pretty immense and powerful, but I mostly would just like to hear a better rapper on this, because all Jaden does over this track is just deliver more nearly monotone bars that just sound convinced of their own genius as Jaden is rapping that, oh, people don't get it. People don't get these raps. People don't get deep raps. They just want a flick of the wrist. What's also kind of weird is that for a majority of the time, Jaden is rapping in this very deep voice. We don't actually hear him rapping in his normal register until the back end of the song. And whatever he's doing to get his voice to sound this way sounds especially artificial during the second verse, where his rapping just sounds really awkward and clunky and ugh. A lot of pink shine when I'm running around. And I'm still waiting on the hundredth out. I guess the reasoning behind Jaden pitching his voice this way is that he is rapping in character at various points on this album from the standpoint of Iris, which was also a thing he did on Sire, as Sire was a character too, but the plot and the message of that record was so convoluted, it was difficult to follow that element of the project. I guess in a way that is a bit more focused on Iris. And I guess this Iris person of Jaden's imagination is supposed to be this stereotypical, materialistic, not deep at all rapper. But I guess he's also someone who has these ambitions of becoming a leader in a futuristic world where LA lays in partial ruin. And while I guess all of this is cool in concept, there are moments on this record where it is confusing as to whether Jaden is rapping from the standpoint of himself or Iris, because occasionally the messaging seems mismatched. As there's plenty of run-of-the-mill rap shit Jaden seems to say in his own voice on this album. And when Jaden is clearly rapping from the standpoint of Iris, like uh, in the midst of the track Mission, he's just spitting a lot of stuff that I think he would have no problem just rapping in his own voice from his own standpoint. So the creative barrier between Jaden and this character I don't think is that thick. Honestly, it all just seems like a cringier take on what J. Cole was doing with 
his deep-voiced alter ego on his last full-length album, K.O.D. The song K, in my view, is a gorgeous finish to these four parts. The song is a very dramatic ballad that mixes elements of rock and hip-hop. Jaden's vocal harmonies on the first leg are actually pretty great. Generally, I would say his singing has improved on this LP a bit. The track has a good progression, a killer refrain. Suddenly it transitions into a beat switch that uh, the instrumental sounds like it's sampling a pair of hair clippers. It goes hard as hell, so it's a really fun ending to this four-part moment, but once we get past this point, once we get past this very epic, extravagant, larger-than-life intro, how quickly do you think Jaden starts to nosedive this thing? It's uh, actually right away with the song Noise, featuring Tyler, the creator. Now, there are elements of the song that I like, that I think are decent, but Tyler's feature is not very focused at all. Sounds like something he would have rapped in 2013, 2014. But really the worst thing about this song is that it is a blatant, a blatant, a totally like unashamed, a totally unashamed and blatant, obvious, and just like bold-faced ripoff of Travis Scott. It's like Jaden basically heard Astroworld and said, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to copy. I need to pursue the same bassy, effect-heavy, psych trap that Travis Scott is doing on his last album. That is my artistic vision now, his artistic vision. Maybe he tosses in a few more instrumental bells and whistles, auto-tune vocal harmonies, some dystopian effects to get it to sound a little different, a little darker, a little weird. And this is not the only track that blatantly rips off Travis Scott on the album, not by a long shot. We have the track again, which essentially sees Jaden going Smitho mode with its trippy transitions and hypnotic synthesizers and washes of reverb. Also the auto-tuned ad-libs calling out in the background. Really? Are you serious? There's also a dreamy, sad vocal progression toward the end of the track where the instrumental turns super mellow and it sounds like something off of a Joji record. It's like he can't think up a single idea on his own, or even change any of the ideas he's taking and turn them into his own. The tracklist basically delivers one Travis Scott ripoff after another, up to the point where we hit Fire Department, where Jaden treats listeners to this punk rock detour. And ultimately, while this is fine, it's not like groups such as Horror haven't already done this to a degree way better. Miraculously, Jaden pulls off another Travis Scott ripoff with the track Mission that actually kind of sounds like a decent Travis Scott song, a song that I would have loved to have heard Travis record. I'm on a mission, mission. I'm on a mission, mission. The amount of tracks that just basically sound like Astroworld leftovers on this record is astonishing. It is mind-blowing. I can't believe that an artist of Jaden's profile would blow so much money on just trying to sound like the last Travis Scott record. And the ripoffs keep coming, but I will try to pass this point, focus a bit more on the songs on the record where Jaden switches it up a little bit stylistically. We do have the track Summertime in Paris featuring his sister Willow Smith, and the vocals on the chorus here are light and heartwarming and cute. It's mostly a blend of R&B and acoustic balladry. It sort of sounds like something XXXTentacion would have done on his last record, except extended out to the point where it becomes stale. The song Blackout is absolutely a torture chamber, another slow burner in the track list here, where Jaden effectively is just moaning over this hard-hitting beat. The percussion on this track is gigantic, 
and just completely dwarfs everything else in the mix, which is just so washed out in reverb, it's difficult to make heads or tails of it. It's like a horrible fusion of hip-hop, alternative R&B, and like those really bad beach indie bands that use effects to distract from the lack of an interesting song idea. Jaden breaks into a very similar moment in the second half of the song, Pain, which is worth mentioning not only because Jaden once more uses way too many effects on this track, but also this is one of many instances on this album where Jaden will end a track off by detouring into some random moment that seems to think it's deeper, more interesting than it actually is. The closing track, the title track, basically presents the same problem as it works in several different parts, none of which really connect in a significant or a meaningful way. It's like they're all just randomly segueing into something else. We get some rap rock, then we get more acoustic all R&B balladry, then we get a weird semi-ambient spoken word passage at the very end that's actually kind of neat. But even these moments on the album do feel like they're slightly derivative, like Jaden is borrowing from Brockhampton's Bareface or even Frank Ocean's Endless. The track On My Own Miraculously is actually a pretty good song, even if it is hella derivative of that graduation 808s era Kanye right down to the flow, right down to the groove of the instrumental. Kid Cudi kills it on the hook though, his vocal performance on this one is flames, flames, flames. And there's not really much more I can remark on with this record, it's not very good. I didn't like it very much, and I'm not surprised. Not only because many of the conceptual and compositional flaws of Sire carried over onto this record. And yeah, Jaden's lyrics can get pretty corny, like that one line about people switching and how he's not playing Nintendo. Jesus Christ. It's not as bad as the washing dirty dishes lines off of Sire, but still, not all that great. And once more, Jaden seems convinced he's making music that's deeper than it actually is. But I digress. My main issue with this record is, why would I want to spend an hour listening to some dude who bought his way into the rap game pretend to be Travis Scott for like a dozen or so tracks? I can't imagine a bigger waste of time. I do admire some of what Jaden was able to achieve here instrumentally. I do admire his very clear ambitions to make music that sounds larger than life. But the likability of this LP kind of starts and ends there, as he's still an average singer, a subpar rapper and lyricist. For someone who's blatantly ripping off these auteurs such as Kanye and Travis Scott, He's not much of an ideas guy, he's more of a I'll borrow your idea guy and just basically copy and paste it without really doing much to alter it. Yeah, there are a few decent hooks here, a couple of decent tracks, but that's about it. The rest of what's here is either very hard to sit through or it is grossly unimaginative to the point where it's offensive. I'm feeling a strong three to a light four on this one. It's track reviews. We have yet another remix of Little Nas X's Old Town Road. Now, this remix, this latest remix, comes at a very important time because if this track stays number one on the singles charts for just a little bit longer, it will be the longest running number one single in U.S. history. It's literally that close. We are almost there. We're just like the light is at the end of the tunnel. Just a few more weeks. And honestly, I, I, I really don't want anything else other than that right now. Having said that, though, uh, this remix may in fact be terrible. Uh, apparently, this is a, a redo of the 
Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus version, adding into the fold Young Thug and Mason Ramsey. So, yeah, I guess we will just see what uh, this new version of the track holds, if it's all that different, if Thugger and Mason uh, improve the track, make it worse. Let's see. Let's go. Uh, Ba-bam. Okay, there it is. There we have it. I don't know, man, if you don't think this version is one of the more fun versions we've heard so far, I feel like you're kind of out of the loop or you're missing the narrative or something. What what I love about Old Town Road and what I've loved about every iteration of Old Town Road so far is that, yeah, it's a little tongue in cheek. Yeah, it's kind of silly. But simultaneously, it's a legitimately catchy enjoyable song with a lot of good qualities. And I feel like adding Young Thug into the mix enhances the hip hop side of the track, adding Mason Ramsey, who is also, you know, a young uh, meme king himself, enhances the country side of the track. It's just this beautiful meld of sounds and aesthetics that we don't typically hear together. But miraculously, (laughs) this track is on track to become the most popular long-running number one single of all time. So as far as Young Thug's performance on this thing goes, uh, definitely one of his more intelligible, definitely one of his more bold and memorable verses in a while. And I like that he kind of separates it into a few different parts where he uh, changes up his flow and his vocal delivery, um, which I think he didn't need to go this hard. He did not need to go this above and beyond in terms of performing and switching it up on this track uh, in order to really add to it. But he did it anyway. He went the extra mile for this song. And I could tell that because it was a huge high profile single that he really wanted it to leave an impression on people. Uh, His vocalizations are a bit wilder than they have been on uh, his more middle of the road solo stuff as of late. And um, yeah, I mean, it's he's he's just a a total nut bar on this track. You know, he's really kind of like yucking it up a little bit. And I like that as far as Mason Ramsey on the track. I've heard quite a few people complaining about, oh, he ruins the track. Why would you do this? Well, I mean, Mason Ramsey, yes, he does sound a tad goofy on the song, but I feel like that's also a little intentional because it is a track that does have a very clear, obvious note of humor to it. Uh, <laughs> what was that line that he said? Uh, you better have some giddy up or giddy out my way. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's not really a way to say that line other than just kind of doing it a little tongue in cheek. Also the auto tune on his, uh, uh, very young little boy voice is hilarious. Uh, I also love that little yodel inflection that he adds at the end of that one. Line. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I feel like I feel like this with Mason Ramsey now coming into the fold is really coming full circle now. And I I don't know. I I don't know if this could get any better past this point. I think this is the perfect, you know, final like stage, final we have formed like Voltron stage of of the Old Town Road remix. I feel like this is as good as an Old Town Road remix is going to get. And uh, personally, I don't think it needs to be pushed any further from here. It's great. It's good. I hope this remix keeps the uh, streams and interest in the song high and that we reach that point where it is the longest running number one single ever. So 
there we go. Old Old Town Road, Reign Supreme, uh, especially with this new remix over here. Those are my thoughts on it. Those are my thoughts. Uh, the, the queen of pop right now, I, I think you could say that, at least the teen queen of pop, Miss Billie Eilish, uh, she has a brand new remix of her ever popular song, uh, Bad Guy, out now, and it's with Justin Bieber, none other than pop heartthrob Justin Bieber. Uh, Billie has attached this track to a <laughs> sort of cringy looking picture <laughs> Bro, you just posted cringe. I, I feel like this is just being shared to show, hey, wow, Billy is collaborating with somebody in the music industry who uh, quite a while ago meant meant a lot to her. Bad Guy is actually one of my favorite tracks off of Billie Eilish's new record, which I encourage you guys to check out my review of that. Loved the album. I think it's uh, one of the best pop records of the year. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a Big Justin Bieber fan, never have been, most likely never will be, but uh, with the understanding that Billy is most likely a big Bieber fan, or at least was at some point, I guess I can sort of see my way to coming into this track with an open mind. Uh, again, knowing that this is probably sort of like a big coming full circle sort of moment for Billy here uh, to have him on this remix. So I don't know. Let's give it a try. Let's give it a shot. Let's see if uh, Justin Bieber coming into the fold really brings anything to the track at all. Billie Eilish, Justin Bieber, bad guy. Let's try it. But bam. Ugh, no, I'm I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with that. I'm sorry. Uh, Justin Bieber sort of ad-libbing a little bit there toward the very end. So I see. Let's go. Uh, was was really kind of like the, the cherry on top of the awful that he brought to this track. If Eilish or her audience had more of an understanding of what makes her stand out or what makes her so special, on the surface, a Justin Bieber inclusion would make absolutely no sense. And now that I'm actually hearing the results here, it's it's pretty much confirmed, yeah, it makes little to no sense. Like, Justin Bieber is very boyish, boring bland, smooth-ass voice, uh, just sung in his usual fashion, literally brings nothing, absolutely nothing, to this track. It's not freaky, it's not edgy, it's not playful, it's not odd, it's not riding the fringe, it's not doing any of that, it's just kind of your typical Justin Bieber feature with absolutely nothing special about it. I'm not sure if you could say anything else other than that. I do appreciate that lyrically Justin is trying to play into some of the themes of the song, but for the most part it just seems like he's writing from the perspective of someone who only has a very surface level understanding of the track and what makes it uh, significant, not only in the current landscape of pop, but what it means for someone like Billie Eilish to be singing a song like this. How she's the most unlikely voice and character for a song like this. Justin Bieber really doesn't seem to have much of a an appreciation for any of that. So, yeah, Justin Bieber getting put into this track, remix style, uh, not very good in my view, but I guess that's just my opinion. Going to give some thoughts on some recent commentary given by Jermaine Dupri, who, if you're unfamiliar, is an incredibly successful, not just rapper, but also producer and executive 
producer who has worked with a lot of the biggest acts in hip hop uh, throughout the 90s, throughout the 2000s, talking about Nelly, TLC, um, and, he, and he's worked with more contemporary artists as well, like Migos, for example. But anyway, we're talking about someone who has had a huge impact on the record industry, especially the hip hop side of it. And he is now giving some thoughts on what he thinks about the newest generation, the latest crop of female rappers. Let's see exactly what he has to say. I feel like they're all rapping about the same thing. And I don't feel like that. I don't think they're showing us who's the best rapper. I think they're trying to show for me. Um, it's, it's like strippers rapping. And I don't I don't as far as rap goes, I don't I'm not getting who is the best rapper. I'm getting like, okay, you got a story about you dancing in the club. You got a story about you dancing in the club. You got a story about you dancing in the club. Okay, all right. Who's getting ready? Who's going to be the rapper? So, okay. So, uh, according to Dupree, who I'm not sure how many contemporary female rappers he's actually paying attention to, frankly. Uh, a lot of these rappers just are strippers rapping. They sound like strippers rapping. They're all rapping about the same thing, dancing in the club, dancing in the club, dancing in the club, dancing in the club. And all of this could be as a result of a few different things. One, it could be more of an old head mindset where just generally across the board, and, and I don't see how this could potentially be the case because he has worked with artists like Migos. They're not exactly the most lyrical artists on the planet if you have this criticism for female rappers specifically as a group as a whole and yet you're working with migos whose material over the course of the past you know five to six years or so has has done quite a bit i think to homogenize the topical focus in a lot of mainstream hip-hop so i'm not sure how much of this i could chalk up to just being like oh it's not about lyrics anymore everybody's saying the same thing what's up with that so I don't think we have an old head mindset here on display, though that could be part of the problem. More likely, I think the issue could be a few other things. One, it could, of course, be a note of sexism, and Jermaine doesn't take female rappers as seriously as male rappers or goes as far as to understand what makes them stand out, even if they are rapping about dancing in the club, even if they are rapping about their freaking pussy or whatever, which Cardi B had brought up in a response to what Dupree was saying in this interview on Instagram, on Twitter, saying that when she comes out with more introspective or more emotional songs, her fans respond by saying that's not what they're interested in and that's not what they want to hear. So she just kind of keeps giving them what they want to hear, stuff about money, stuff about dancing, stuff about her She's just pretty much serving her audience the things that they want to hear. I feel like what Jermaine is insinuating here could be logically taken to just look at hip hop on the whole. I mean, how much rap music throughout the 2000s was stereotyped as just being about, yeah, this is about drugs and money and sex and the club and that's it. There's no other kind of hip hop. And sure, there are people who are totally clueless and out of the loop who you might forgive for thinking that sort of thing, given that one of the biggest or many of the biggest singles of that decade in the hip hop genre were about being in the club, 50 Cent, in the club. So there could certainly be a note of gender bias there, but I think mostly what the issue is here is that Jermaine doesn't seem all that familiar with the latest crop of rappers outside of the ones that have sort of risen to the top because they put out music, because they put out messages that are the most 
agreeable and the most easy to latch onto for the greatest number of people. And for Cardi B and for artists like Megan Thee Stallion, that means putting out party music. But honestly, thinking of Megan Thee Stallion, I would take her rapping any day over any number of completely boring, one-dimensional, comatose, auto-tuned male rappers slash singers that all sound the fucking same and don't have a single thing to say in their music. And even if you wanted to try to find out what they were saying in their music, you could barely understand them half the time anyway. A lot of these male auto-crooners slash rappers, like in a one-on-one, face-to-face, freestyle battle or whatever, even if Megan's just rapping about nothing but stripping or dancing in the club, she could probably rap a lot of these guys under the table. So how is that not an example of someone showing you who the best rapper is? Having said all that, though, once you get past the Cardi B's and the Megan the Stallions and the so on and so forths, you do have a very promising and a very exciting crop of new female rappers who are doing really excellent work and are turning heads, doing something different. Sometimes they don't come out with the best albums. They're more of a singles artist. Uh, They work more in a short form format, but still they're coming out with great stuff. We're talking about um, Lil Sims, whose newest record, Gray Area, is my favorite hip hop record of the year so far. Uh, You're talking about, of course, uh, Rico Nasty. You're talking about Rhapsody. You're talking about Tierra Whack who across the entire musical landscape, not just hip hop, is one of the weirdest, most creative, and most eccentric artists out there today. And she's been getting tons of press, tons of attention, tons of acknowledgement. I don't know how someone of Dupree's stature is not aware of the Tierra Whack buzz. And listen, there are many other female rappers that could be mentioned past this point if you guys want to throw any of them down in the comments. You are certainly welcome and invited to do so. But even just with some very surface-level mentions of female rappers who've gotten quite a bit of attention, like Dupree's insinuation just completely falls apart like a piece of wet toilet paper. So this is silly. Uh, Obviously, this guy needs to be paying more attention. And I think even if female rappers are rapping about being in the club or rapping about money or rapping about literally all the fucking shit every male rapper has rapped about up until this point, I don't get why as soon as women start rapping and start making headway and start getting some momentum going in the scene, all of a sudden... They look stupid if they're rapping about dancing. They look stupid if they're rapping about being in the club. They look stupid if they're rapping about their pussy. Meanwhile, how many rappers, dozens and dozens or thousands and thousands really, have been rapping about their dicks, rapping about being in the club, rapping about drinking this, smoking that, doing this other thing? I could keep ranting about this, but I think I'll just stop it here. I think I'll just end it here. Morrissey. Legendary frontman of the Smiths, who is in the news once again after stirring quite a bit of controversy, doing what else, of course, but saying controversial things that people don't like. And when it comes to Morrissey, when he is causing a stir, it could be on a number of different topics. It could be the veganism, vegetarianism thing. It could be the Kevin Spacey thing. But in this most recent case, which is now being responded to by not only numerous music publications, but musicians who are Morrissey's contemporaries, uh, we're, we're reacting to quotes and ideas that are being characterized as uh, super far right, kind of racist, xenophobic, openly saying things like everyone prefers their own race and posting a pretty questionable YouTube video that has now been removed. Now, as concerning as what Morrissey said 
is to me. Reading Billy Bragg talk about it, also reading Nick Cave talk about it, and, and just knowing Morrissey's history, I'm not one to react and think, okay, you know, Morrissey's off the deep end now. This is it. Morrissey's done it. He's totally unforgivable and unredeemable at this point. Because even someone who is just a casual Smiths fan, a casual Smiths fan, I've been exposed, pretty well exposed to loads of ridiculous and very questionable and silly things Morrissey has said over the years. So in a way, I kind of struggle and I have a hard time reacting in a way that that may or may not be appropriate for the situation when it comes to Morrissey saying something, because for me, it's just like, okay, here, here we go again. He's, he's doing it one more time. And I think there certainly is a tendency in the music journalism community to look at everything he says in a vacuum without looking at the backlog of his past statements that are also ridiculous, categorizing it as also ridiculous and uninformed, just like a lot of things that he says, but also looking at some of the better takes and positions that he's taken over the years too. However, I am sort of swayed to more of the opinion of, of being super concerned about the situation, given uh, Morrissey's recent performance on The Tonight Show this past May, which I wasn't even aware of because, again, I'm not following every single thing Morrissey does like week in and week out. Uh, but apparently he was caught wearing or seen wearing uh, a, a pin of this somewhat far right political group for Britain, which after just some very light looking into online, it, it seems like the entire existence of the group is just to stoke fear <laughs> around the idea of, of Muslims living in the UK, immigrating to the UK. Seems there's quite a bit of xenophobia in the community of people following this group. And it would seem that to me, that from an outsider perspective, that there's not really any other reason other than that to support the group. I mean, I'm well aware that in the UK, there have been a number of different far-right groups bubbling up, some of which are more vanilla than others and maybe have better rhetoric to kind of mask the more xenophobic views that people in the party might hold. In my view with For Britain, it's kind of naked and they're not even one of the more popular groups out there right now. So I can't imagine that Morrissey's wearing of one of their pins, essentially endorsing them as a political party, is, is occurring merely by mistake, is occurring with pure and total ignorance to why the group exists and what they actually stand for. And look, I'm not saying that there aren't concerns with immigration in the UK and that there's not a debate or a discussion to be had, but to merely act like all groups like For Britain are doing is just trying to open up the debate about immigration is kind of just turning a blind eye to what the group actually does and stands for and wants. And honestly, at this point, I can't say whether or not Morrissey is totally hardline endorsing everything that they say and their leader does, or if he's just kind of sipped the Kool-Aid because he doesn't understand the underlying implications of For Britain's actions. And I am certainly concerned about the negative impact that endorsements like these could have. So now that my concern here has been voiced, and I think there is certainly cause for calling out what Morrissey is saying, calling out actions like wearing this pin, at least giving it kind of a side eye. What I also want to discuss is this greater conversation about what is Morrissey doing? Is he ruining the legacy of the Smiths? Is he making it harder for you to listen to the Smiths? So on and so forth. In my view, the Smiths happened so long ago. And also, there was much more to the Smiths than simply Morrissey. Yes, people love his vocals. 
yes, people love the man's lyrics. And yes, uh, people think that uh, back in the day he was he was downright sexy. However, you know, you're completely ignoring uh, the guitar work of Johnny Marr and a whole host of other things to just simply boil the band's legacy down to whether or not Morrissey is saying something ridiculous today. As far as separating the artist from the art goes, I feel like we're not really given any bigger a no-brainer than crap Morrissey is saying now and music he made with his old band decades and decades ago. I would say that it doesn't even really justify throwing into the trash a lot of the records earlier on in his solo career either. If as a result of what he's saying now, maybe you're sitting there and wondering whether or not you actually want to go out and see his new tour or something like that, uh, okay, I can understand that concern. I get that. But I don't think Morrissey just being ignorant or being stupid on these issues is cause for Smith's fans, Smith's fans to just like tie themselves up in knots and turn every listen of meat is murder into a moral quandary. Because regardless of how heinous Morrissey's views are right now, that's not what the Smiths stood for. And I guess I'll leave it at that. Thank you everyone for listening to the latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. This has been Anthony Fantano. Make sure to hit us up on social media at the Needle Drop on Twitter and also a Fantano on Instagram if you want to catch more of what we're doing every week. You don't want to miss a single segment. Also, on top of that, we have theneedledrop.com. A lot of our content goes up over there. YouTube.com slash the needle drop, youtube.com slash fantano. Also, shout out to Jonah who assembles this podcast as well as he does every episode of the podcast. Wherever you're listening to us, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, leave a rating, helps out the podcast quite a bit. And that's it. We will see you guys in the next episode. You're the best. Anthony Fantano, The Needle Drop Podcast, forever. Mm -hmm.